previously on the psychology of entrepreneurship. When, you know, when you're thinking about like, when can you say no too much or get kind of curmudgeonly, um, you know, I think it's, it's in relationship to someone else and someone else asking for something. You know, there's this part of me that loves the idea of a year of yes, saying yes to everything that comes across my path. People pleasing and caring what others think. And we all deal with it. We all have that thing. We don't want to let anybody down. One thing I realized over the years was that by saying no to myself, not others, I drained my own energy, you know? It's nefarious, man. Like the brain works in fucked up ways. The mind is one of the most deceiving, manipulative pieces of equipment, flesh, human bodies on earth. I never have trusted my brain. All of that weight lives in your head. And you are the decision maker. Psychology of entrepreneurship. Hi, it's Ronsley. If this is your first volume, welcome. This is a weekly series where I go inside the mind of an entrepreneur, artist, athlete, academic to decipher what is the psychology of our decisions. I'm Australian and I'd like to acknowledge our traditional custodians of country where I live and work. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge our continuous connection and contribution to land, sea and community. Today, we're talking about the art of negotiating. Negotiations is something that we do all the time. Whether we know about them or not, we are negotiating all the time. And so are actually children from the start, from the time they're born. And if you didn't check out the previous volume where we spoke about saying no and yes to kids, you should really go and check out that volume. But today, we're talking about something that is really dear to most of us as entrepreneurs and it costs us when it comes to negotiation. By the way, if you got something from the previous volumes and you've listened to the show for a while and you had a big aha, let us know. The psychologyofentrepreneurship.com is where you go to give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And also, if you know someone else that'd be a perfect guest, we want to hear from you. We start today's conversation with the amazing Alexandra Carter. Alexandra Carter is a clinical professor of law and director of the Mediation Clinic at Columbia Law School, where she has spent over a decade helping thousands of people improve their negotiation skills. Coming up in this volume, we have Alexandra pinpoint the exact moment that she was given the opportunity. But before that, she talks about mediation and some tools that will help you solve disputes right now. I am a professor at Columbia Law School. I teach mediation, actually, which is the art of helping people resolve legal or other disputes outside of litigation. And it's interesting because I've been doing that now for more than a decade. And along the way, you know, a mediator often gets involved in really thorny legal or relationship disputes or even uh, diplomatic disputes when things are pretty far gone. You know, business partnerships are pretty far gone or psychology, you know, personal partnerships are pretty far gone. And after working with people to salvage what they could from these really, really challenging situations, I realized that I had a set of tools to bring to bear that I wanted to give people earlier. 
before they ended up in court and ended up in front of me as a mediator. And so I put what I knew, which is a mediator's take on negotiation. It's all about the power of open questions. I put that into a book, Ask for More, 10 Questions to Negotiate Anything, which came out last year from Simon & Schuster. And gosh, you know, I think the most surprising thing for people when they meet me or talk to me or hear some of my work, people see a woman who, you know, is a lawyer and wrote a book called Ask for More, and they think, wow, she must have just, you know, emerged from the womb feeling super comfortable negotiating and claiming her worth in every circumstance. And it's actually not true. As a young professional, I found it much easier to turn my substantial skill set on other people than to apply it on myself. And the journey of using what I knew to further my own goals and to work with myself is part of the journey that led me to write this particular book, a lot of which deals with where negotiation starts, which is talking to yourself. This is a point that we couldn't just brush over. There is a massive underrepresentation that happens around us everywhere. We've covered that underrepresentation in different formats on this show. And if you've listened to those, please let us know what you thought about them. For entrepreneurs, especially, negotiation is very, very important. Even if you're not an entrepreneur, negotiation is for everyone, even you. I wanted to say a few things about women in negotiation. You know, the first being that I think many women see negotiation as, and this goes for no matter how credentialed, accomplished, brilliant they may be, they see it as something that's more natural for men than for them. And that's part of the reason for that, I think, is because there's so much in popular media and there's been so much, frankly, in the popular negotiation literature that really paints it as predominantly a man's domain. First of all, most of the major negotiation or listening books have been written by men. I know that because after I signed a deal with Simon & Schuster, I think Part of the reason my book went to auction and so many people bid on it is that they said, you'll be different from the rest of the people in your field who are white, male, and about 20 years older than you are, many of them with an FBI or a hostage negotiation background. And so when you look out to see who is an expert in this field and you see people who look predominantly one way, And then you look to popular media and you see yet again depictions of people who all look one way. And then when you enter the workforce and you face the everyday sexism that women face, um, whether it is at the actual table or the virtual table, men talk more than women. They talk over women. There are times when a woman shares an idea a man shares the same idea and the man is credited with the idea. You can see it uh, in the boardroom. You can see it uh, on Clubhouse, frankly. You see it everywhere. And so part of my mission, not just in being in the field I'm in, but in writing a book so that my voice is out there among the rest of the voices in the field, 
is to show people that negotiation is for everyone. That if you are somebody who has felt left out of the conversation before, you can be an excellent negotiator. You don't have to be a guy. You don't have to be somebody with a military or law enforcement background. And you don't have to be the largest, loudest, most aggressive person in the room. In fact, you can't see me, but I'm 5'2 in sneakers. I am never the largest person in any room. And sometimes they don't even see me coming until I have crawled up inside their brain space and taken a look around. So, you know, there's much more to be said, Ronsley, and I think we could have a really large discussion just on this. But I want to say that whether it's women in negotiation or people of color in negotiation or first generation professionals and negotiation, there are a lot of people who have been underserved or left out of the popular conversation on the topic. And that's my mission is to widen the lens and make negotiation tools and confidence accessible to anyone. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, asking open-ended questions encourages someone to speak longer in negotiation. This can help diffuse attention as well as provide you with valuable information and insight into their perspective. Active listening is key to negotiating and mediating because it shows you have empathy and builds rapport. Rather than rushing for a resolution to the person's problems, slow the situation down and just listen. This can also help to remind you that you do not have the burden of being a problem solver. Instead, you are there to listen and help the person explore options. I had to get Alexandra to break down a technique that we could use in negotiation. One of the things that I teach in my work as a mediator and in my work as a negotiation trainer for many organizations here and abroad is a technique called amplification. You know, Ronsley, you talked about seeing a dynamic, whether it's taking place, you know, in a physical room or a virtual room and wondering how it is that one can be effective. And the technique is called amplification. And basically what it is, is speaking someone's name and recognizing them specifically for an idea, for a contribution, for a firsthand lived experience. This is a strategy that has been used in a lot of different organizations, private and public sector, to make sure that voices are being elevated that need to be elevated, but also to make sure that the very best ideas are floating to the top, regardless of who has suggested them. So the the example where this came to prominence was in the first Obama White House, where women were outnumbered two to one, believe it or not, among his senior staff and had trouble getting airtime in meetings or being able to offer and get credit for their ideas. And so what they did was they adopted this strategy called amplification, and here's how it works. Let's say Holly raises her hand at this table and offers an idea. I might then raise my hand, or maybe Mark or Ronsley raises their hand shortly thereafter and says, I just wanna return us to Holly's excellent idea. Here is the thing Holly said that I think is impactful for this discussion. So in other words, they speak her name and they give her credit for something specific, something true, something meritorious. 
And when they do that, this is not just something that women can do for women, something that people of any gender truly can do for each other in a room to make sure all of the voices are being heard. In the case of the Obama White House, actually, President Obama noticed that this was happening. He started calling on women more often, but not just on women, but also on junior aides, you know, widening the lens again of who was able to be heard at the table. And women actually gained parity with men in senior positions in his second term, in part as a result of this strategy. So I hope this is helpful to anyone who's listening. If you're thinking about not just negotiating for yourself, but negotiating for others, and that's something that a lot of leaders want to do or should strive to do, amplifying them publicly is something that really helps and actually reflects even better on the person who is doing the amplifying because you are seen as a leader, as generous, and as somebody who's really confident. this audio documentary has always been to build a strong community of entrepreneurs and creatives to provide a space where they can use their voice to share their authenticity with the world. As a valued listener, your voice matters too. We love to hear your feedback and ideas. So don't be shy to let us know how we're doing in the ratings and comments. If you have a message for our production team or know someone who would be a perfect fit as a guest, you can find out more information on how to share your input at psychologyofentrepreneurship.com. Dr. Mark Goulson, who we have covered in volume 28 of this show. So go check that one out when you are done with this. He is an expert in empathy and in negotiation. It's important to realize what people are listening for because that gets them to open up to you. This is Dr. Mark. Uh, I was trained as a psychiatrist, and one of my early mentors was kind of one of the top uh, thought leaders in suicide prevention. He started the suicide prevention centers in Washington, Los Angeles. Um, he founded the American Association of Suicidology, and he was one of my early mentors at UCLA, and he would refer me these suicidal patients who other uh, I was... I was outside of my training and uh, uh, residents didn't want to see them when they were discharged. So they were inpatients who were still suicidal, but not acutely suicidal. And so uh, uh, he would refer them to me and I would see them. And uh, most of what I learned was how do you get people who are suicidal to give up death as an option? And, uh, and it was interesting because uh, uh, what I noticed early on, and, and I was very fortunate because after my training, I was really fortunate because uh, there was a fellowship I was supposed to uh, get into, but the fellowship was canceled. And so I said, well, I'll just go out in the world, see what happens. And I was fortunate because I didn't necessarily have to report to an institution and check boxes. And as I started seeing these suicidal patients, I started to notice as I was with them, uh, I learned to listen into their eyes. 
and I have a book called Just Listen, which done like, is done very well. It's in 28 languages, and, uh, and I speak around the world on listening. And what I notice with them is, without their telling me, when I listen into their eyes, they would be screaming at me with their eyes, you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time. And so I had the choice to check boxes and follow uh, and sort of cover my uh, cover myself or just dive into their eyes. And, and what happened is, uh, as I uh, was working with them and I dove into their eyes, they, they would lean back towards me. And here's one of the insights, because one of my, one of my, sort of my mission in life now is to try to spread what I've learned and share it with the world and lessen suicidality, which is now epidemic. And, uh, and one of the insights that I got, and you won't get this unless you were suicidal, but if anyone's listening in and they've been suicidal, will kind of get this. Death is compassionate to hopelessness. And when you feel hopeless and you're in such pain, you attach to death because it offers to take it away. It basically feels your pain and tells you it will take it away. And so what I learned to do was to be able to listen to them in a way where they felt felt by me. Not understood, not just understood, but they felt felt. And when they felt felt, they began to cry. So, uh, so I have this book out called Why Cope When You Can Heal. And I've introduced to the world this uh, method called surgical empathy, which means when you go to where the other person is coming from and they feel you're there, they lean towards you. And that's what I did with uh, suicidal patients. And it's also helpful in negotiation. So a year and a half ago, I spoke in Moscow with a Nobel Prize winner named Daniel Kahneman. He wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And I have nine books and five of them are bestsellers in Russia. And uh, especially the one on listening. And what I introduced to them, and so I'm going to circle back to negotiation and actually give you a tip that I'm now teaching, especially entrepreneurs who have to pitch investors. Uh, my, my presentation in Moscow was called uh, Change Everything You Know About Communication. And what I told them there's about a thousand Russians, managers. I don't know how many entrepreneurs were there because it's Russia. Uh, I guess there are many. I guess there are some. And I, and I said to the audience, if I focus on what you're listening to and I give you bullets, we'll have a very nice transactional conversation. You write down some of the bullets. You know, you'll try some of them. Most of them won't work. And you'll say, oh, it can only work for him. He's an expert. It won't work for me. And then I switched my voice and they didn't hear me in English, but they did hear my tone because I was spontaneously translated into Russian. And I said to them, uh, but if instead of listening to you or focusing on what you're listening to, and I give you bullet points and some good stories so I can hold your attention and you'll give me your mind for an hour, I switched over to a an FM NPR voice and so they could hear my tone I said but if instead of focusing on what you're listening to I focus on what you're listening for and I get it right without you telling me and if I deliver on what you're listening for you'll give me everything and then I said let me see if I get what you're listening for and this also goes with negotiations by the way uh, 
especially if you're an entrepreneur and you're pitching to investors, what they are listening for, uh, I said, what you're listening for is something that will help you get increased positive measurable results. If you're an entrepreneur and you're pitching to an investor, what they're looking for is a win because they have to bring it back to their company and they need something to balance the investments they've made that were, that were not winners. So I said, what you're listening for is something that will get you a positive, measurable result. Is that true? They go, duh. And then I said, and I think what you're listening for is a way to do it because you're you know, leaders and managers that's less stressful than your command and control approach because that's causing you and everybody else to drink too much. And it's probably not the best uh, way to do it. So you're listening for a way to get positive, measurable results that is less stressful. Is that true? And they go, duh. And finally, I say, and what you're most listening for is that in the hour I have with you, that I give you something that is immediately doable by you when you don't have to buy a book or sign up for a course. And there's no book because I haven't re written this one yet. And there's no course. And if I could give you something that was immediately doable by you, and you don't have to be a psychologist, you don't even have to like psychologists. If I gave that to you and it got you positive, measurable results, and it was less stressful, then it would be worth the more than 500 US dollars you paid for today in giving, giving up a day or time. Is that true? And they got excited. They say, oh, da, da. And I said, sit down, sit down, sit down. Okay, I got a presentation to give. But the point is, and what I, what I try to do in teaching negotiation is always realize that whoever you're with is listening for something. And if you can just have a mindset of being curious and you get them to open up what they're listening for, and then you get to drill down, they'll open up more to you. The Skills Plus Project provides a quote from John F. Kennedy that states, we cannot negotiate with people who say what's mine is mine and what's yours is negotiable. These words ring true in any negotiation. You cannot have the mindset that you'll get whatever you want. The site goes on to say, a successful or win-win negotiation leads to a solution that is acceptable for both parties and leaves both parties feeling that they've won in some way after the event. This helps people keep good working relationships afterwards. So if you want to keep your relationship strong and keep from burning any bridges, you must know how to negotiate with the proper mindset and preparation. If you don't know, I gave a TEDx talk in 2017 that was made a TED talk in 2020, which you can find on the TED.com website. The title, The Perfect Recipe for a Deep Conversation. The punchline is actually about being a better listener. Here is Alexandra Carter again about the impact of being a good listener and what it could do for someone else. That someone else actually is herself. When I'm training people to mediate, I often tell them that when we listen deeply to each party, when we hear them, when we acknowledge them, when we show them that they are valued, and, and I love the idea of adding value to Mark. You know, I think in the work I do, the, the value I'm seeking to add is not to tell people what to do, but to show them different tools that they have that they can use to resolve things for themselves. 
So when I listen and hear and acknowledge and see the two people sitting in front of me, it's incredible to witness how only then can they turn to each other and offer the same. But they they have to see it first from another people, from another person. I, I think the other thing you said was essentially that amplifiers create amplifiers. And I've also found that to be true. I am where I am today because a professor at Columbia Law School who later would hand me her program, that professor had me as a student and she listened deeply to me. In fact, you know, when you were talking about your breakfast with Larry King, Mark, this professor had me as a student in class and after I graduated and was working at a very large law firm, she took me out to breakfast almost every month. And she didn't push, she didn't, you know, inquire about my future career plans. She simply sat and listened to me. She wanted to know what I was thinking about, what I was feeling, what was happening for me in my professional life with, with no agenda. And it was in the course of being so deeply listened to and acknowledged by this person um, that I came to think about how could I possibly do this for a living? And several years into that, Mark, she invited me out to the same breakfast place in New York and said, have you ever thought about becoming a professor yourself? And that was the start then of my applying to this job at Columbia that I now hold and her turning her program over to me. And I have to say that I feel as I'm saying this, I, you know, I, I can feel the emotion rising in me. I feel such a debt of gratitude to that professor, Carol Liebman, and the other people who poured into me, who saw me for what I was and, and saw my talents and heard and acknowledged me that it's my mission in life to pay that forward to my students and my parties in mediation and all of the people that I train as I go out as a negotiation trainer. And what I teach is very much a mediator's take on negotiation. And I love it because my hope is that many more people are going to get to experience some of that magic mark that you're describing, that they're going to be they're going to feel heard and acknowledged and they're going to go and be able to do that for someone else. Psychology of entrepreneurship. Coming up on the psychology of entrepreneurship. Currently I'm the CEO of Children's Ground and Children's Grounds of First Nations organization. We have systems of injustice that impact people globally and that injustice, often we focus on the people who are experiencing the injustice rather than the system that is creating it. We have in this country the oldest living knowledge systems in the world. First Nations, lots of First Nations people say we still have a stolen generation. Psychology of Entrepreneurship. 
that conversation has been a little slice of heaven. So we're going to do more of those. And if you're interested to hear them live and join us live, and we would love to hear your voice in whatever capacity it allows us to, please follow the Psychology of Entrepreneurship Club on Clubhouse and also follow me at Ronsley. It would be amazing to get you on and get your perspective on different things. In the meantime, go have fun. Psychology of Entrepreneurship. This is a Must Amplify production. Special thanks to every guest expert that has appeared on the show. Editing, voiceovers, and sound design by Kaylee Bonniman and Tiago Vega. Guest research by Jenna Elliott. Content by Corin Castles. Project managed by the legend that is Kaylee Bonniman. Produced and hosted by me, Ron Slivas. For more episodes and way to listen, go to mustamplify.com slash P-O-E. Love the polished audio docu-series style of this podcast, The Psychology of Entrepreneurship? At We Are Podcast, you can learn how to create a similar style for your own show. This revolutionary virtual event assembles podcasters, entrepreneurs, and marketers in one spot, so you're able to learn from the masters. Head straight to wearepodcast.com to reserve your spot at our next event.